Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you stirred Bethlehem by the arrival of Ruth and Naomi. You stirred Jerusalem by the arrival of the Magi. And you have stirred this nation and perhaps the world over recent events. We ask for your Holy Spirit to give us peace and insight into your holy word. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. On Monday this week, I had the introduction to a sermon nicely packaged with a bow on top, and it's all done very nicely. And then Wednesday happened, everything changed. At times of chaos and bloodshed, of disorder and division, as we witnessed on television this week, we ask ourselves big questions. Questions about the soul of a nation, about responsibility, about the limits of free speech. And in the wake of a plague that has ripped off the band-aid of our society, exposing the wounds underneath of differential access to healthcare by minority populations, of racial unrest, polarization, economic vulnerabilities. At a time of a plague, we look for evidence so that we need not despair. And we ask questions about our identity, our history, and our direction. These are some of the issues that the book of Ruth engages with. It's an ancient text. It resonates from hundreds, 3,000 years ago, yet still is compelling today. A drama of strong female leads, of interracial couples, of friendship, even of romance. Ruth speaks to us from a historical context. It's pivoted between the book of Judges in the Old Testament and Samuel. In the book of Judges, it ends with there's no king in Israel, and everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And in the book of Samuel through Kings and Chronicles, we see the development of kings and their relationship with the covenant. Ruth is this pivot point between these two sections, the first being Genesis through Judges, where the focus is on the nation, the people of Yahweh and their covenant. In a post-Genesis 3 world of disintegration and decay. And then pivoting to the second section of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles of the king and his relationship with the covenant and of a tra tragic demise and eventual destruction. So Ruth is like a shaft of light. It peaks its head up. She peaks her head up in the midst of profound darkness, in the midst of profound turmoil, of confusion, and that in the midst of that darkness, Yahweh, the Lord Almighty, is resolutely committed to his people and to his plan for their ultimate
deliverance. Ruth can also be looked at as a wisdom book. In the Hebrew scriptures, it comes right after the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 31 describes a virtuous woman. And in many ways, Ruth is that epitome, showcasing. In fact, in Ruth chapter 3, verse 11, she's described as a worthy woman. No other woman in the Old Testament is given this description. Not only is she a woman of wisdom who fears the Lord, she's also a woman who demonstrates what it means to be faithful and the vindication of the faithful. And that theme of the vindication of the faithful is something that resonates broadly with the angst and the questioning of Job in the wisdom literature or of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and of many of the Psalms of lament and turmoil that here we find a wise path. So as we come to the book of Ruth this morning and take a look at chapter 1, we have these resources, these lenses with which to look at this narrative and perhaps to see a God of surprises, a God in the midst of difficult situations, a God of surprises with difficult choices to make, and a God of surprises on a difficult journey. Well, let's look, first of all, at the difficult situation, verses 1 through 5, and then through the difficult, uh, difficult situation in verses 1 through 5, and a difficult choice, verses five, 6 to 18, and then a difficult journey, verses 19 to 22. So first of all, then, Ruth 1, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the days when judges ruled. It's shorthand for the book of Judges, for that era. In the book of Judges, the people of God have missed the mark. They have twisted the word of God. They have deliberately violated his standards. And in consequence, they are accountable to Yahweh. They come under condemnation and are subjugated by area forces, enemy nations. This is intolerable to them. They cry out to Yahweh to rescue them, to help them. And he provides a deliverer. But after a while, they refuse to listen to the deliverer, and this cycle continues. In fact, throughout the book of Judges, there is six cycles, each time getting worse. And the reader is asking themselves, can it possibly get worse? And at the end of the book, there is no king in Israel Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Well, not only is there political and legal chaos within the kingdom, but there is an economic crisis. We read there is a famine in the land. It's a pre-modern agricultural people that are totally dependent on the harvesting and the produce of the land. This is catastrophic to their economy. And the irony here is that the focus is on the house of bread, of Bethlehem itself. How can it be a house of bread in a land that has no bread? And on top of that, we also see a racial dimension to this difficult situation. Elimelech is an Ephrathite from Bethlehem, and he has taken a sojourn in the country of Moab. 
Moab was a nation that refused to provide bread and water to the Israelites when they exited from Egypt. In consequence, the Lord Almighty pronounced a curse upon them. In Deuteronomy 23, 4 to 6, he says, No Ammonite, no Moabite can enter the assembly of the Lord until the tenth generation. So we have this racial theme in Ruth 1. And on top of it all, we find this emotional trauma between Ruth, Orpah, and Naomi. Stripped of their identity, their husbands have gone, their means of support in a patriarchal and traditional society. They have no children, their former social security to support them. They are stripped of relationships and friendships and thrust into this, this traditional world. How will these women fare? How will Ruth, this childless widow, what kind of prospects can she possibly have? Well, we see in verse 6, there's a slight surprise. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. The key word there is return. They are returning. The Lord has visited his people. So that triggers a choice, a difficult choice to return because return is a somewhat complicated issue. Naomi has been gone for 10 years. She's a different person on her return. How will how will her neighbors and friends receive her? And how will the Lord Almighty regard her? And for you and I, the whole idea of return is riddled with issues. What does it mean for Park Street Church to return after the pandemic? What does it mean for your job to return? Do you want to return? Do you expect to return? And when you return, what are you, what are you returning to? Is it normal? How is it the same? How is it different? How are you the same? How are you different from this pandemic? And for Ruth herself, there is a certain complexity. She is not returning at all. She is from Moab. And yet, under the guise of Deuteronomy 23, we know that her people have been come under the curse of condemning, of separating them from the assembly of Israel. But if you look through the rest of this narrative, maybe this afternoon you spend 20 or 30 minutes reading this drama, you'll notice that there are 10 episodes. And each episode matches the generations of Moabites who are excluded. A sort of artistic motif showing that, yes, there is hope with Yahweh, even for a marginal people. And the author throughout the text, 55 of the 88 verses, relies on dialogue rather than on straight description to push forward the narrative, the gender, the, the plot line. And we see that it's in the dialogue, a very economical and reserved text, that's in the dialogue that we discern the character, the nature, the essence of these key figures. And in this section from verses 6 to 18, there are three verbal interchanges. The first one about Naomi in verses nine, 7 to 9. 
says, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord may grant you rest to find rest in the house of another husband. What we see is the character of Naomi, her compassion. Yes, she is concerned politically and legally that they return to their home country where they are citizens under the protection of their parents. But more than that, she's concerned for their welfare, that they may have a new start in life, perhaps a marriage and perhaps children. Then in the second interchange, we see another dimension of Naomi's character. In verse, the end of verse 9, she, she kisses them and they lift up their voices and weep. And Naomi and Orpah say to her, no, we will return to you, with you, to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back. My daughters, go your way. I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I should have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. There's a Chinese proverb about eating bitterness, about being alive in the bitter sea. And Naomi has eaten bitterness. She has been alive, if you like, in the bitter sea. And yet, quite remarkably, she does not inflict her bitterness on her daughters-in-law. No, she says, yes, I have been exceedingly afflicted by the bitterness that the Lord Almighty has brought into my life, but I don't want to impose that on you. There is a certain integrity to this in her character. Well, the third interchange pivots on verse 14. They lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So it happens all at once, this emotional cacophony, and Orpah kisses and returns to her people and to her gods, but Ruth clings. It's the same word used in Job 41.23 to describe the back of a crocodile, if it's a crocodile, the beast that is described there, as if there are metal plates welded together on the back of a crocodile that are inseparable. No air passage can pass through it. In a similar way, Ruth is clinging, welded to Naomi, and we find in the interchange a more detailed revelation of her character. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you are buried, there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death separate me from you, part me from you. What we have here is total commitment out of affection and loyalty to Naomi, but also to Naomi's God. Ruth is all in. This is a complete commitment. Frederick Bush, a commentator on this, says that Ruth, in this 
situation, making this choice, this type of choice stands alone in the scriptures. Think of it. She's not received a promise from Yahweh. She's not received a vision or a miracle. She doesn't have a support group or a team of people around her. She has cut her ties with her family, her friends, her faith, all that is familiar. And what does she have to look forward to? Rejection, maybe even death. Not even, not even Abraham, in his step of faith, can be compared in so many ways to Ruth as she makes this absolute commitment. And even more so because as a young woman, she is making that choice, that decision to have allegiance to an older woman and to forsake the prospect of marriage and all that that could entail for her. In all the memories of Israel, there is no one like Ruth. She makes the difficult choice, but she's on a journey. And we see in verse 19 to 22, the direction of this journey. So the two of them went out on that, and they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Maybe you're a college student and you're about to return to college if your authorities permit, COVID permitting. And perhaps your roommate or your classmates will look at you and say, hey, you know, you've changed. There's a, you've got a new hairstyle or some new clothes you got for Christmas. Or when we in, before COVID, would move around a lot and travel, maybe go on vacation, we'd come back, and our friends and family would comment, maybe, on some change. You've got a, a tan. Or perhaps you've moved from one part of the country to another, and you've come back to New England, and, and people have seen you now. They haven't seen you for some time, and they notice, oh, there's some change. and Oh, you're, you've got a mustache, or you've got a beard, or you've, some change. Maybe you're thinner, maybe you're, you're not. <laughs> that it's quite natural to express or even to think of these changes. But in this case, the women say, is that, is that Naomi? Can we, is that really her? And she says, don't call me Naomi Pleasant. Call me Mara Bitter. I went away full, but came back empty. The Lord has testified against me. The Lord Almighty has brought calamity on me. In her journey, she's not whining. She's not grumbling. She has what we might call a holy complaint. Naomi here is effectively putting the Lord Almighty on trial. Wherever you are in your journey, you may reach a point, a spot, where you have to wrestle with the kindness of the Lord Almighty and the calamity. You have to wrestle with a point in which you deal with bitterness and suffering in the light of the Lord Almighty. And for Naomi here, it's not that she lacks faith. She has faith. She has faith enough to wrestle. Like Job in Job 3, or Jeremiah 9, or Jacob in Genesis 32, or Abraham in Genesis 15, she has enough faith to take God at his word. 
And it seems so unfair. What has she done to deserve their suffering? It seems so unjust of the Lord Almighty, and he seems so indifferent to her plight. Why doesn't he fix it and fix it now? How is she to make sense of all of this? Like Job, who said in Job 2.10, shall we not receive good from God and not also receive evil? She recognizes that the Lord Almighty is the source of irrefutable authority, of ultimate power and wisdom, of control of the universe. She comes to him, and she knows that he's not silent. He has testified. He is ever active, ever communicating, ever working, ever governing, ever shepherding, ever directing the course of life in the universe. Deuteronomy 32, 37 says, See, now besides I am he, there is no God beside me. I put to death, I bring to life, I have wounded, I will heal. No one, no one can deliver out of my hand. And on your journey, on my journey, there's a tension for us, or a temptation perhaps, that we may fixate on one aspect or one attribute of the Lord Almighty. Perhaps it's his mercy or his justice. And we fail to grasp that his justice and his mercy, or his love and his power, are all connected. They are interconnected because he is not parts. He is one God in three persons. And we cannot comprehend God because God alone is God and we are not. And there is no earthly model that is adequate for us to grasp the Trinity. How can this Lord Almighty be kind and show calamity? How can we face the realities of bitterness and suffering and yet hold intention, a clinging to this Lord Almighty who holds the world in his hands? It matters to us because we are on a journey. We are in a post-Genesis 3 world, a world of dysfunction, of disunity, of disorder, of disinformation, of betrayal, of abandonment, of denial, and, and a world of the Lord God Almighty himself, who is ever active, ever communicating, who is not silent, who refuses to stop in his agenda, who cannot fail. We may have a, a knowledge of this God we may have a true knowledge, but it's not full. We may have a real knowledge of this God, but it's not complete. No one understands the thoughts of God. The apostle said in 1 Corinthians 2:11, "No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son." Matthew 11:27. No one. This is the Lord Almighty with whom we must do on our own journey. And we see how this concludes in our narrative. They come to Bethlehem. Naomi returned. Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, and she returned to the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Do you see? The tide is beginning to change. The beginning of the barley harvest, a little shaft of light in the midst of this turmoil, in the midst of this darkness and tragedy and trauma, the beginning of the barley harvest. Something is about to happen. Well, where does all this lead us today? 
I think we can make three reflections. First of all, about identity. Second, about wisdom. And thirdly, about history. First of all, about identity. You may have noticed how much the author emphasizes Ruth's Moabite ethnicity. Why? Well, but she is the ultimate outsider. She is the cause of concern, of suspicion, maybe hostility, condemnation. And yet by the end of this book, she is the ultimate insider, the source of blessing. She is the ancestress of King David himself. And like Rahab the Canaanite and Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, Ruth the Moabite is evidence that ethnicity of racial background is not a barrier, is not an obstacle to clinging to the Lord Almighty, to belonging to the Lord of the universe, to belonging to Christ. And yet there are many parts of the world where this good news has not yet been shared. If you sat down in Japan today with Adrian and Rebecca Tam or Elise and Zane Kang who are on their way soon, we hope, to go to Japan and ask them about Japanese people, they say, well, yes, if you talk of Christ, you say, well, Japanese, we're Buddhist or we're Shinto. Not to be Buddhist or Shinto is, how can you possibly be Japanese? Or if you spoke to Mike and Caroline in the Middle East working with Arab Muslims and asked them about, well, what do Muslims today think about Christ and committing themselves to following him as the true God, in fully God and fully man? Say, well, the family would probably say, shame on you. How dare you bring dishonor on your family? How, how dare you? betray your culture, your history, your tradition? How is it possible for someone who is Arab or Muslim not to be Muslim? How could they possibly still be Arab if they weren't Muslim? This past week I was talking with the Lees, our missionaries in Central Asia who are back because of COVID for a while, and they were saying in one part of Central Asia among the, the Kazakh people, for them to belong to Christ, to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ is also seen so ethnically. To, to become a follower of Christ, they'd say, huh, that is to become Russian. In their own minds, Christianity is so deeply connected to ethnicity, to the Russian Orthodox Church and its over 100, 200 year influence in that part of the world. And yet, Ruth shows us another way. But not only in other parts of the world, in our own corner of the globe, here in, in North America and New England, it's all too easy for us to consider our own ethnic heritage, our own racial background as being that essence of our own personality, of exactly of who we are, and yet fail to realize that our own racial background, our own cultural heritage, there are limits to the virtues that that brings. And by the same token, there are blind spots to the vices, to the idolatries of our own cultural background. And yet, Ruth 3,000 years ago and Christ 
2,000 years ago, shows another way, offers a different path, a path that anyone from any ethnic group can belong to Christ, to belong as citizens of a new kingdom, of a different kingdom that transcends all other earthly and political kingdoms and monarchies. The Apostle Paul said there's neither male nor female, Gentile nor Jew, slave nor free. All are one in Christ, Abraham's offspring, heirs of the promise. This is good news. This is such good news we want the world to know. This is why we send missionaries cross-culturally around the world. Because in Christ we can become fully and truly human as we were destined to be. Yes, our racial and cultural heritage matters. But our identity in Christ, our connection with the covenant God, that is ultimate and shapes us through repentance and faith and restoration and reformation and transformation as the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit begin to take hold of a person's life and change them and restore them and renew them. That they are members of two kingdoms, the heavenly kingdom and the earthly jurisdiction. Well, the second reflection that we can make is about wisdom. Naomi and Ruth on their journey here in the fields of Moab about the Lord Almighty. And then at the end of the chapter, presumably they see the beginning of the barley harvest. And on the journey in the hearts, certainly for Naomi, she wrestles, she puts God on trial. She has this holy complaint. And it raises a question in our own minds of are our eyes open, are our ears open, are our hearts open? to glimpses, to echoes, to whispers of what the Lord Almighty might do in the mundane, in the ordinary. As one missionary said, God does not always speak through the whirlwind, but neither does he also always speak in a small, still voice. Are our ears open? As the apostle said, no ear has heard, no eye has seen, no heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. How much of a God of surprises he is. This was brought to my own attention quite recently, last Saturday. Kim and I were at home, and uh, probably seven or eight o'clock at night, and there was a knock at the door. And Kim opened the door, and there was an elderly woman there and a middle aged man, sort of seven or eight o'clock at night. She didn't know who they were, didn't recognize them, and they said, we'd like to come in. And sort of a little bit of negotiation, I guess, and, and they said, we want to talk to your husband. Well, they came in, and the lady was 91 years old with her, her son, and she lived down the street, and Kim didn't know this lady. I had actually met her over the years, walking our dog down the street and chatting a little bit as one does with one's neighbors. And she said, last night, my husband of 55 years died. Would you conduct the graveside ceremony on Monday? Well, it was a complete shock, a complete surprise. And I felt so honored on that Monday to go to the graveside to conduct the burial. We don't know 
what God is going to do in ordinary life, in mundane life. May God open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to what the Spirit is doing. Well, finally, about history. One pastor has said that history is not marbles simply in a straight line, but a whole mass of marbles, all interconnected, that the Lord himself is the Lord of creation and the Lord of new creation, and he is Lord of every interconnection between the two. How is that possible? How can we understand that? It's incomprehensible for us as humans to understand how can the Lord Almighty have on his agenda or in the schedule of events, if you will, the slaughter of innocents in Bethlehem and the salvation of the world? Or how can it be what men intended for evil in the book of Genesis, God turned for good, the saving of many lives? How can those two things go together? How can we understand them? And yet when we read the end of the book of Ruth, of this childless widow refugee, ultimate outsider becomes the ultimate insider. How can that possibly be? We read the end of the book of Ruth. She gives birth to Obed by Boaz, who gives birth to Jesse, who gives birth to, who, who, who's the father of King David himself. How can the, the, the corridors of time be directed in this way? It's incomprehensible to our minds. And then we turn over the pages to our New Testament reading of the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. And we see Ruth is mentioned again in relationship to King David. In the ancient world, genealogies mattered a lot. They matter in traditional cultures. In Kazakhstan, I hear that you need to be able to say, to cite seven generations back, maybe 14, to be considered a pure blood, a thoroughbred, thoroughbred a pure Kazakh. For me, I, I struggle even to go back to my great-grandparents or beyond, such a modern-shaped modern person that I am. Well, for them, what counted was legitimacy, to show that the line of the royal messiah was pure, and yet when we read it, we see that it includes patriarchs that we know of Abraham and so forth. And yet there's a question mark. Where are the women? Where are the matriarchs? Where are the mothers of the nation? Where is Sarah and Rachel and Leah? And what we find is, yes, there are women, but there are foreign women, foreign Gentile women of Rahab, the Canaanite, of Ruth, the Moabite. And of the women, they are, well, rightly or wrongly accused of impropriety. And so what we see is the Lord of history, through thousands of years, accomplishes his agenda on his schedule. And thereby he turns upside down the values and the standards and the timetables of men and women in their own cultures and their own societies. He accomplishes his goal, his ultimate plan. Well, if we fast forward a bit in more recent history, we could turn to the 20th century. At the beginning of the 20th century, a group of Christian leaders gathered in Edinburgh, Scotland for a big conference. 
And they looked out at the world and they said, well, we can see in the 20th century, India will become a Christian continent. We can see the science, we understand what's going on. But as we look at Africa, Africa is such a complex, challenging environment, it, it's just we cannot imagine anything really going on in Africa. Well, they were totally wrong, completely misguided. By the end of the 20th century, India remains one of the most challenging contexts for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Africa, it's busting at the seams. A Christian continent, perhaps, one might call it, full of new ministries, of healings, of dreams, of scriptures, of revelations, of Bible schools, of many people coming to Christ. It's a hive of Christian activity and endeavor. How wrong they were. Or take 1949. Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong in Tiananmen, he stands up and it's alleged that he said, the people of China have stood up when the People's Republic of China was established. Who could ever have imagined Chairman Mao would do more for the Christian gospel in 50 years than the previous 150 years of Protestant missionaries? In 1949, there were maybe three quarters of a million Christians. 50 years later, estimates vary, but maybe 100 million believers in Christ. Who could ever have imagined what eye has seen, what ear has heard, what heart has ever imagined what God has prepared for those who love him? Or take more recently in the Middle East, in Tunisia and Algeria, Egypt, Mauritania, Syria, Lebanon, some of the Gulf states, during the Arab Spring, 1910, 1911, 1912, during the political and economic and social turmoil, there was underneath it an earthquake that was happening that we didn't really see. This was a movement, multiple movements, of visions and dreams of more Muslims coming to faith in Jesus Christ than at any other time in history. From the period of 2000 to 2020, more Muslims have come to Christ than in the previous 1,200 years. Who could have imagined? History is his story. He is guiding all the events the conflicting events, the difficult events, the bitterness and the suffering, he is bringing it all under his son's supreme leadership. May we cling to him as our true shepherd on whatever journey you're on, whatever stage of the journey that you are on. May you cling to him. He is faithful. He cannot fail. Let us bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we thank you that your kingdom cannot be shaken. While we look out on the history of nations and peoples from the dawn of time, we know they rise and fall. And yet they're like dust on a scale, less than dust, the nations before you. We thank you that you inhabit eternity and yet you are Emmanuel and dwell with men and women. Help us to cling to you this week. Help us to grow in wisdom. Help us to grow in worship. Help us to grow in our true identity in Jesus Christ. 
For we pray it in his holy and powerful name. Amen.